1942, a group of people came together in Georgia to do something, well, at the time, very dangerous. The world of 1942 Georgia believed that what these people were doing was illegal. And technically, it was illegal. They believed that it was illegal, but they also believed that it was a violation of normal laws of what was right in the universe. And some people in Georgia even believed that what this group was trying to do was against the very will and purposes of God. But this group was ready to do what was culturally wrong in order to do what they believed was good and right. So they formed a small farm called Koinonia, which is Greek for fellowship. And they committed this farm to being a demonstration plot for the kingdom. That was the language they used. They were like, we want this place to demonstrate to the world what the kingdom of Jesus is supposed to be like or what it can be like. And we're going to do that through our practices, and we're going to do that through the way that we engage one another, and we're going to do that through the way that we love. And so they committed themselves to practicing the things they saw in Jesus and in the early church. And so they took a dusty piece of land that had not grown anything, that had not been useful, and they cultivated it into a place that you could call home. They shared their resources. They gave everything they had to the poor. And above everything else, they practiced racial reconciliation in 1942, Georgia. It was this last work that got them into so much trouble. The folks of Koinonia Farm endured shootings, bombs, and entire boycotts of the goods that they were selling. And the entire city, or the cities around the Koinonia Farm would boycott their goods. They wouldn't buy them. They wouldn't allow them to leave the city in order to starve out the farm and cease the work and efforts that were happening, all in an attempt to stop them from continuing to be a demonstration plot of the kingdom. And yet, the folks of Koinonia endured because they believed that this is what it looked like to be Jesus' people, to truly pick up your cross, to, to live into the reality of the gospel, to follow Jesus and to practice what it means to be the early church. And so they endured and continued. They became a people who got themselves into good trouble following Jesus. Now, if you're interested in examples of the church getting itself into trouble in the name of Jesus, you do not have to look only to the civil rights movement, though I do think there is beautiful, beautiful examples that fill that history. But our entire story as the church, though full of lows, is full of people willing to get themselves into trouble following Jesus. The early church was constantly in trouble. In trouble for refusing to worship Caesar as king or God and choosing instead to say that Jesus was king and God. And that threat to the Roman authority was not endured and so churches were persecuted because they could not stand to not be named king and God. The early church literally disrupted entire economic systems because they were like, you know what, we're going to worship differently, we're going to live differently, we're going to have different priorities, and so that's going to actually change the economic nature of entire cities. And that caused revolt and trouble. People do not like when you mess with their money. In fact, the early church was often accused of cannibalism, one, because they always talked about eating the body of Jesus, and then everywhere they would go, uh, orphan children were disappearing from the streets as they got adopted into families. The early church was constantly causing trouble. Our history, in fact, is full of people 
who caused trouble, who were willing to assume that the news of Jesus was actually as good as they said it was. They were willing to pick up their cross and do what that required, and that caused good trouble. Now, if you're like me, when you hear those stories of the early church and you talk about the trouble they caused, you talk about the amazing work that Koinonia Farm did or the early church did in uh, the ancient world, you are, in one hand, probably really inspired. That's how I am. I love those stories. But on the other hand, you're probably also disappointed or maybe cynical or disillusioned because you look at the church that you're in now or you look at the church in America or you just look at your own life, whatever it is, and you're like, ah, I don't see this being the same kind of thing that I hear about in the stories of the early church or read about in the civil rights. Maybe you love to read about stories of the church in like the rest of the world. You're like, yeah, why are we not like that? So that's why we've begun a new series today entitled Good Trouble. To kind of ask that question to say like, what would it take for us Missio Dei in the church in America to again be a community that practices something, that believes something, that actually leads to trouble from time to time. What would it look like for us to take our faith that seriously that we picked up our cross, entered into difficult environments, and lived out this kingdom reality? What does it mean for us to be the church in the world today? And throughout this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few practices that are often forgotten about the church. These are sometimes weird practices, sometimes uh, unknown practices, sometimes just mundane practices like gathering together, eating around the table, practicing reconciliation, practicing forgiveness. We're even going to take a moment to look at how the early church thought about lawsuits to say like, well, what does this have to do with being the church? And they may seem small, and when you read them, you might be like, oh, why, do we, why do we even care about these things? But what we'll find is that every time we look at one of these practices, the early church did them in a way that was disruptive and challenging to the systems of their world, to the false gods of their world, to the ideologies of the world, to the antagonisms of their world, that they would engage in these things because they're like, we believe something different. We believe a different hope and a different reality and a different good news story, and so that leads us to practice something differently. So we're going to look at these different practices. But before we can even look at these practices or before we can understand these practices, the first thing that we need to do is just to understand what is the church? What does Jesus say about the church? What is the story of the church in Scripture? So if you would, grab your Bible and look at Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Whatever we believe the church is supposed to be in this world, it's going to flow out of some story, some vision, some bigger idea that Jesus sets. And the first time that he talks about the church comes in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. This is what the text says. It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, and others say that you're Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus, in the first moment that he starts talking about the church, he gathers his disciples together and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And the answer to that question is really interesting because obviously his work and his reputation and his story has grown enough that people are beginning to answer it and they're beginning to need to answer it in kind of important ways. And so some people are saying that Jesus is a prophet who's returned from the dead, which is a weird thing to say. Others are saying that he's John the Baptist, which is an even weirder thing to say because just a few chapters before this, he was beheaded. So that would be very frightening. Right, and Jesus is like, okay, Weird answers. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, out of nowhere, without any context, without any previous history of this moment, says, oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is such a big moment that even Jesus is like, Peter, you don't know this on your own. Now, we often miss, I think, how big of a statement Peter is making because we use that language all the time. We often talk about Christ or Jesus as Christ, or even Jesus as the Son of the living God, or whatever. We, we're familiar with that language, and we live post-resurrection. So we also know some things about Jesus and have had the story of Jesus articulated in ways that Peter has not. But the statement that Peter is making is massive. It's revolutionary. As the video that we watched before kind of walked through, Peter is connecting Jesus, this dude that he is following, this like Jewish rabbi that he's, he is following and living around. He is connecting him with the whole Old Testament story, the hope of a promised Savior, specifically with the hope of a promised King. We spent the last like uh, seven weeks working through the Psalms of Lament. And if you were with us in the Psalms of Lament, then you know that that hope, that ache for a King it's constant throughout Israel's history. They lose their homeland, they get led into exile, then they go back home, but they still have no kingdom or monarchy or kind of like all of these things that they long for, they just live without, which cultivates an even deeper sense of need in them. And so Peter is connecting Jesus to like an existential hope in the people of Israel. This national hope, this national story, this deep, deep desire that a king would come who would restore Israel and right the wrongs of the world. That's what Peter is saying when he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the chosen one. You are the royal king set to come and make this world right. Now that moment matters so much for our conversation about the church because Jesus hears him say that. And he says, Peter, you don't know this on your own. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So whatever has just happened in that moment, like whatever has just transpired between Peter and Jesus is big enough that it leads Jesus to introduce the concept of church for the very first time and to say that something in this moment is revealing how I'm building it. And so that leads to just kind of like really practical questions, which is, well, what does Jesus mean when he says the word church? And what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? So we'll look at the first one. What is the word church? In Greek, the word is ekklesia, 
And it would have been a common word for the people listening to Jesus talk. It often referred to a gathering of people. But specifically, it referred to a political assembly of people. Like a bunch of locals, citizens would gather together with leaders to make political decisions, to make some kind of political argument, to, to hear one another out and decide how, the, how the, the nature of the state would move forward. And so this word that Jesus is gathering and he's pulling as a reference for the, the thing that he's doing, it has political overtones in the day. Specifically, Jesus is saying, I am building something that is a socio-political gathering of people. He doesn't necessarily give all the clarity of that or the context of that, but that is the word that he's pulling. And so immediately everyone around him would be like, oh, there's something, there's something kind of disruptive about that. There's something political about what he is saying. There is something that is, a, that is charged about what he is saying. He is gathering and building a people. It's more than a Sunday service, and it's more than a house church, and it's more than, or a small group, and it's more than just like listening to one another. There's something political and social about the thing that he is saying. And that's a dangerous thing to do when you are an occupied people, to say that you are building a, a political movement or a political gathering of people. It's a dangerous thing to do when you are not the chief power, which Jesus was not. So that's the first side of this equation. So what is the church? Well, at some level, it is some kind of social, political gathering of people. Well, what is it built on? There's a lot of debate in this moment about what the rock is that Jesus is talking about. Is the rock Peter? Is the rock something else? But I think from context, the, the easiest clue that we get is that the rock is not necessarily Peter, though Peter will play an important role in the building of the church. Instead, the rock is the thing Peter just said, which is the good news that Jesus is king. So what is this socio-political assembly of people built on? Oh, it's built on the news that Jesus, not Caesar, not Herod, not any president, not any dictator, not any leader throughout all of history, that Jesus is king and not them. The rock that the church is built on is the kingship of Jesus. It is his rule, his reign, his authority over us that makes us the church. Before we understand the church to be anything else, we have to understand that it is the people of King Jesus. That's the first thing that we have to understand in the church. When Jesus introduces the concept of church to the world, this is how he introduces it. The church, before it is a religion, before it is a club, before it is a voting block, which hopefully it never is, though it is, I get it. Before it is any of those things, it is supposed to be the people of King Jesus. from this book that we bought that people can get. Uh, scholar McKnight says, the church is only the church to the degree that it lives under King Jesus. Right? The argument that Jesus is making in this moment is like the church is the people under King Jesus. And as soon as we stop living under King Jesus and we decide that some other authority is going to be our primary authority or be our king, then we actually stop existing as the church. So the church is a political assembly of people defined by their submission to a king. And when we leave that, when it's like we leave the church. The church is primarily the people of King Jesus. Now, that can be hard, I think, for us to understand in practice. Because, like, as a people who live in America, like, we're a socio-political people, we have laws and 
practices and rules. And so it's kind of understandable. What does it look like to be a citizen, right? You just paid your taxes recently. You drive the speed limit, like, around-ish. I don't know why that's so funny. Right? There's laws. There's things that you do because you're a citizen. So we look at Jesus and we're like, well, is there anything similar? And there is. Jesus, too, has a law. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he unpacks it in full. But he summarizes his law in Matthew 22, verse 37, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He says, if you want to understand Jesus' law, you understand it in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if that still doesn't make sense, then Jesus often illustrates it. And one of the most powerful illustrations of this law comes in Matthew 16. In verse 24, Jesus is describing what it looks like to be his follower. And what we do if we want to be his follower. And he says specifically, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what is the law that Jesus has in his socio-political gathering of people? What is a law of self-sacrificial love that flows out of our love for him? I think the video did a really good job showing that Jesus is engaging the world through this kind of like sacrificial love that he moves towards others, he forgives others, that on the cross he makes space within himself by absorbing all the hostility and sin and brokenness of the world into himself so that he might extend grace. He's like, this is my way. This is how I exist in the universe. This is how you exist in relationship with me. And it's actually how you exist as my followers. You pick up your cross, you follow me, you love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus is a king, we are his people, and his law is love. And that's the first thing that we learn about what it means to be the church. And so now as we begin to ask, okay, well, what does it look like for all of our life underneath that? Then we have this like kind of rubric that Jesus is starting to give us, which is like all of life gets lived out of a lens of saying, how do I live it in submission to King Jesus and out of the law of love? So today, how do we deal with money? Well, we deal with it under King Jesus and out of the law of love. How do we deal with family and family turmoil or decisions in the family? Oh, under King Jesus and out of the law of love. How do we deal with political turmoil under Jesus and out of the law of love? Does this thing help us love better? Does this thing live under the authority of Jesus? So the people of Jesus is first and foremost, or the church is first and foremost, the people of King Jesus, trying to live out the law of love. But Jesus goes on to say even more about what his church is and what he's doing. He uses this really confusing language at the end of verse 18. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't know if you talk about Hades much, outside of watching like the Disney Hercules movie, but I don't have a lot of experience with Hades, so it took me a bit of research to understand, Jesus, what are you talking about? 
And I think, again, the video did a really good job illustrating this, that Hades or hell often in this kind of context is used as this like long-running theme throughout Scripture to say that there is a kingdom that lives in opposition to Jesus' kingdom. Sometimes that kingdom is called Babylon. Sometimes that kingdom is called Rome. Sometimes that kingdom is called Hades. Paul often refers to it as the kingdom of darkness. So there's this idea that there is something that lives in opposition to Jesus, and that is the kingdom of death. And God is at work doing something, but there is something that stands in opposition to him. And the truth is, is that's a thing that we are most often a part of until God rescues us out of it. The scripture has all these different names for it, but at the end of the day, the kingdom of death is our sin entrenched in human hearts, broken systems, and in the world around us. And so what does that mean about the life of the church and the story of the church? Well, it means this, that we are the people of King Jesus on mission to oppose the kingdom of death in our world. But that's why we have been called and constituted. We don't just live in isolation or withdrawal. We don't live just in kind of for our own moral high ground or our own moral superiority. We're not just some weird community that practices something for arbitrary reasons. No, we exist to live in opposition to the kingdom of darkness. That is the church, we are called and invited and challenged to enter into the world and extend the work that God is doing. Right, is Jesus is after the resurrection of Jesus, right before the ascension, this is how Jesus sends his disciples. He says, I'm sending you into all the world. Now authority is mine, so go and be my witnesses. I declare that something else is happening. So how do we do that? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack the practices of extending the work of Jesus, of making his kingdom in this world. But I, I really like this quote by a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. He says, when the church conducts its liturgy, when the church reads the Bible, when the church declares the gospel, it engages in a counteract, countering the world so long dominant among us. I love that language because I feel like it's easy for us to look at the, the practices of Scripture, the practices of the church, like gathering on the table, practicing forgiveness, and to name them as too simple or mundane or weak, maybe even inefficient. But it is these simple practices that define the life of the church. It's what we see in the life of the Koinonia community. It's what we see all throughout the history of the early church. And it's these very simple, small practices that when done together actually oppose the kingdom of death. And Jesus says the good news about that is it's not arbitrary because well, the gates of Hades will not prevail against these small practices, these small gatherings. Instead, the church will. Now, I think that's a crazy thing to say because like, if I just look at my own life, or I just look at myself, it's hard for me to see how the church prevails against the kingdom of death. It's hard to see how I prevail against literally anything. Soft palms. Right? And that's what makes this moment so amazing. It's like, if you look at, actually, if you look at the next moment that comes in Matthew 16. So verse 15, 13 to 20 is, is him describing what the church is, Peter understanding what the church is. And then if you look right at verse 21, 
It's like Peter takes this incredible reversal in his own personal story. Jesus begins to describe what it's going to take for him to make this kingdom a reality, how he's going to give himself, how he's going to die on the cross, how he's going to extend sacrificial love to the world. And Peter to that says, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall ever happen to you. So the guy who just understood that that Jesus is king and he's doing something now stands literally in the work, in the midst of the work that Jesus is trying to do and says, you cannot do it. And so to that, this is how Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of earth. The guy who is just praised for getting it right gets it so wrong in the next section of the story. Here he gets it, and then here he is literally an obstacle to it. And I think this is what is such good news about the church, is that Jesus knows that that is true and that it is always true of us. He knows that we are weak and incompetent. He knows that our hearts often bend towards evil more than they do towards his will. They bend towards the things of the world and the things of man more than the things of God. And so he promises that despite those things, the church will prevail because the church is built on him. And that means that not death, not evil, not the kingdom of death, not even our own incompetence can prevail against the church because the church is rooted in God's work. It is built in him and his strength. And maybe the best part about this is that it is built in his strength And Jesus chooses to flex his strength most in weakness. Jesus does not choose to extend his strength, to extend his kingdom, to do his work in traditional exercises of power or muscle or might. Like he could have done that, could have conquered, could have brought violence and coercive power to the game and just overthrown the whole thing. But instead, he chooses to come in the form of a servant. He chooses to adorn the garments of a servant, to wash the feet of the world around him, to give himself to them, and to call us into a similar kind of servant lifestyle. The next moment that Jesus will talk about the church is actually in Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, he begins to introduce some of the practices of the church about how we gather around the table, how we enter into relationship with one another. But what's interesting is that if you look at 18, the first moment is this conversation about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? That's thinking on like these traditional notions of power and strength. And so they, they, Jesus says to them, he says, if you think that way, you miss what the kingdom is. Instead, you need to humble yourself like a child because that that person who lives in humility, that's the greatest one in the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is that it is a thing that is built on Jesus and his strength and his might, but then it is extended in our weakness, in our humility. So you and I, as the people of King Jesus, we are invited into his mission to oppose the kingdom of death. But it is through our assuming of a posture of humility, of dependence upon Jesus, of our desperately receiving grace again and again, and then extending grace to those around us because we know how much we need it. It's about coming to the table again and again and inviting other people to the table with us because we desperately need it. The church is the people of King Jesus on mission in humility in weakness, 
And what we do in that moment, it matters. It's not arbitrary or insignificant. And this is the final moment of Matthew 16. If you look at verse 19, Jesus says, What you do matters, and this is how you know, because I give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, Jesus uses confusing language in this moment, confusing metaphors that we're not super familiar with. And so we'll just break them down, keys and then binding and loosing. I think the keys piece, easier to understand. Right? If you give somebody keys to your house, you're giving them access to your house. You're trusting them. You're giving them a measure of authority. I have keys to the Heisey's house. They're going to take that away soon. Right? They trust me to enter into their home. They're like, take care of their dog when they were having a kid. Right? And so there's an extension of trust, an extension of authority. I have access to the thing that they are doing. Okay? That's the first metaphor. That makes sense. We have keys to the kingdom. What is this binding and loosing piece? What does it mean to bind and loose on earth and then in heaven? Well, I think in simple, the easiest way to understand this is that Jesus is connecting the work of church and the work of kingdom. In saying that the work of the church is in fact the work of the kingdom. Again, Scott McKnight says it really helpfully. He says, Jesus connects the present church, which is a people, with the future kingdom, which is a people. He connects what Peter does now in the church to what God will do then in the kingdom. The church then is what is present and peopled in the realization of the kingdom now. What we do as the people of Jesus is not arbitrary or empty moralism. It is not empty gestures or strange religion even, as we are learning to live in submission to the king and live out of his law of self-sacrificial love, we are literally joining God in making his kingdom a reality here and now. We're joining Jesus in this, this thing, this overthrow of evil, the establishment of his kingdom, the laying of the feast table that we celebrated last week. As we join with Jesus, as we practice his love, and as we live in submission to him, we are participating in the realization of that kingdom work. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means for us to be invited into fellowship with him and then sent out into the world. It is to join in that political revolution. It's not small or arbitrary or insignificant. That is world-altering, and that will also get you into trouble. The church is the people of King Jesus on mission to make his kingdom a reality here and now. Now, I don't know about you, but that for me reframes how I see my own life and especially how I see the church. So I think most of us, we understand our role in the church as it's coming to Sundays and it's serving on Sundays. And I think Sundays are beautiful. I think they are vital. I think what we're doing in this moment is essential. But if that's the only way that we understand Sundays, then we have a tragically small picture of what it means to be the church. And if this is the only way that we understand participation in the church, then we have a tragically small imagination for the church. It is not simply about gathering together to hear the story. It is also about joining God in the healing of the world. And if our whole understanding of relationship with Jesus is simply, say, uh, uh, having an interpersonal relationship, that is good and it is beautiful and it is right, but it's also too small because being in relationship with Jesus is also about being a citizen of his kingdom, 
called to live out the law of love, to live self-sacrificially in the world, to lose our life, in fact, for the establishment of his political order. You see, this is what it means to be the church. And over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at practices that flow out of this imagination. And even simple practices in this world, I think, look different. Gathering at the table is now a different act. It's not simply relational, though it is essentially relational. It is also disruptive and political and challenging because we gather at this table and as we break this bread and we declare that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that there is a different kingdom that is inbreaking in this world and that we give allegiance to that one and no other. And that is a radical statement. As we try to figure out what it looks like for us to live our entire lives in a submission to Jesus and to say that you have all of my money and you have all of my stuff and you're going to determine the way that I engage in this world, that is a radical statement that, again, like it did in the early church, could challenge the economics of our world, that could challenge the structure of our world, that could challenge the justice system of our world if we were willing to say that Jesus is king and to be his people means to live in submission to that and out of the law of love. This is what it means to be the church. It is not arbitrary. It is not small. It is not insignificant. You and I have been given the keys of the kingdom. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So, Missio, what is your definition of the church? Is it this big? Because if it's not, well, then I invite you to bring it to the table to have Jesus challenge it to be what it really is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have rescued us, that you have literally delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of you. You have freed us from our own entrenched sin. You have broken us out of broken systems so that we can then be a part of your kingdom and your work and your church. God, as we hear your story, as we gather at the table, as we pray, as we sing, would you make that news true, the news that you are king, the news that you have rescued us, and the news that you have constituted us a new people, would you make it real and big so that as we leave this place, we leave with a new imagination for what it means to be us. God, send us out today, people under you, living out your law of love, establishing your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.